This morning for our responsive reading, we will read uh, Psalm 32. I will begin with the first verse, congregation, the even number verses. We'll conclude together with uh, uh, verse 11. That's page 568, I believe, in the Pew Bible. Psalm 32. (coughs) How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me from songs of deliverance. With songs of deliverance. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include, include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Be glad in the Lord rejoice, your righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. Please be seated. Okay. This particular psalm, Psalm 32, written by David, um, it kind of sounds as though to me David had written this in his time of deep sorrow for what he had done probably after the sins with uh, Bathsheba. And it really wore him down, because I see this particular psalm as a psalm of true salvation, particularly as he begins, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. To understand that God can cover those sins at the time of David, that he had been forgiven for what he had done, Today, we would say that it was the blood of Jesus that has washed away our sins. Through through that process, he has taken them away. No longer are they covered, merely covered, but completely taken away. And this is something that we come to understand through the, the miraculous workings of God in his grace in providing a salvation. How blessed is the man whose, whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When we truly come before God to confess our sin, to show who we really are before the eyes of God, we fall short in our own, I mean, we, we, we fall short. We don't come anywhere near to the perfection that God requires. But with that imputation, where it's a fancy word, by, but what God is doing is taking those sins of ours and taking them away, putting them onto his ledger, and taking care of them. It's, it's sort of an, uh, an accounting term, but he's taking them. And that he is washing them away from us. 
we hear David groans all day long while he was in, in his sorrows. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as, as with a fever heat of summer. Any time that we are burdened in that respect with the sins that we carry with us, and we put them in a sack and we're, or we put them in our pocket and carry them with us, and we know that we are not being the, the, the ones whom, whom God had called, they do wear us down. There is a burden upon our heart. We know that we're not upright before God when we're cast in that light. But we can, through confession and knowing that God has taken care of those sins, acknowledge them, confess them, and stand upright before our God. These, these situations that uh, David talks about are really essential to understanding the grace of God and what he has done for us. In verse 9, he talks about, Do not be as a horse or as a mule with no understanding that requires a bit in the mouth or a bridle to steer and direct. We're not just those dumb animals out in the field. Well, some you know, beast of burden. But God steers us and directs us by his loving kindness through his word, through his Holy Spirit and leading us through life. It's, it's, it's not as though we needed to be broken as a horse or, or an animal, but God does that to our heart when we come to that understanding of who we were and what he has done for us. That reality just gives us cause to want to follow him, that we don't need to be dragged around by a, 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 a bridle or, or anything, that he directs us. And we do so in a joy, joyous way. God, um, let's see, and be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That's when that heart is changed, one from stone to a heart of flesh. David certainly knew what, what we talk about today as being brought into the new covenant, being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ to be brought into his kingdom. David certainly understood, at least in some part, exactly what that meant. Again, he never talks about the sacrifice that will cleanse that sin or the offering that will take it away but one who knows what it truly is to have a broken and contrite heart and coming before God, that God heals it and brings us into his, into his uh, fellowship. So to me, Psalm 32 is, is, is a great psalm of salvation, and I think David certainly understood that and gets it across. Okay, thank you. It's a good word. I, I love going through the psalms. I truly do believe the psalms are the Father's wisdom. You know, They're books that just truly give you the heart of the Father. Again, written by a man that was known as being a man after God's own heart. So it seems fitting that that would be the Father's heart, the wisdom that we read there. Bringing us into our message this morning, I've entitled today's sermon, Temples, Tabernacles, and the Weight of His Glory. And my goal is to conclude the book of Exodus, bring us into some thinking about the book of Exodus. Um, what we've been doing is thinking through the scriptures. We started I think at the beginning of the year, man, Genesis was a tough book to get through. Yeah, we started somewhere, but actually, I'm sorry, after the uh, semi-annual meeting, we started looking at Genesis, so back in June, and now today we'll finally come to the end of Exodus, so it's been quite the journey. Um, last week, I preached through Exodus and expressed God's provision and providence, as it would ma- was made known in the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt, which, of course, pointed to the greater provision and providence of God, our lives in Christ. For the last two months now, or for the last 
two months or so, I have belabored the point that we must understand the parallels in the Old and New Testament regarding what is called the Exodus motif or the Exodus pattern to gain a healthy understanding of God's accomplished work and how we are called to participate in that. A point I have made again and again is if you follow the original Exodus story, the Israelites did not discard the wisdom they gained during the wilderness journey once they arrived in the promised land. They didn't say, oh, God was a God of miracles. God did all this stuff. He's been with us. Now that we're in the promised land, it's all over. Show's over. Obviously not. They took the wisdom that they learned during the wilderness period and they applied it to their lives in the land. So even when they were living the promise, they still found value in looking back at the Exodus journey and remembering. Remember when God delivered us from Egypt and his mighty outstretched arm saved us? Obviously, if you're living in the land and you're going through some troubles in the land, fighting the Amorites or Amalekites or whoever's around you, you need to remember God was with us. He was with us when we were going through that horrible moment there. Now we're here and yet things are still a little rocky. I don't know how you explain you know, living in the promised land. We're living in the promised land. I don't know about your life. I have some ups and downs and battles here and there, face my own parasites. And uh, parasites are one of the people in the land, by the way. I guess I could say parasites and you'd understand what I'm saying. Um, but again, we, we all have those moments. So they get into the land and they need to remember, remember what God did to get us out of Egypt? Remember the, the plagues? Remember everything? Again, I've been preaching on it for two months. So hopefully you, you could go back and remember all the things we've been talking about that we learned as we looked at this wilderness journey and all the details that they would have known. So no, um, they didn't get in the promised land and say something like, well, now that we're not expecting to get into the promised land anymore, there's no hope for us. You see how silly that logic sounds? But I've heard something similar to that. I'm going to tell you, you're going to understand where I've heard that in my own life. Obviously, those of you that understand preterism, people say, well, wait a minute, if we're all there already, we're living in the reality of it, then what are you hoping for? And then I sit there and I say, you have to kind of understand the Exodus pattern. The people didn't get in the land and say, oh, hope's over, hope's gone. No, now we're in the land, now we're in the promise. Now, everything we learned during that journey applies. Now apply it, live it. So just as Israel lived in the land and lived out the promises of God that he had given them, still struggling, still wrestling, we, the people of God today, living in the promise of God, still have those struggles, the parasites, parasites, um, and we have to deal with that. So this was a time to live out everything they dreamed could be possible in a life that was promised to them. Now that the glory had been revealed, it was time to truly live. We truly do worship and amazing and loving, caring, and providential God when you look at the story of the Exodus. So why do I say all of that? Why is all of that important? Again, many today, in a modern failure to comprehend where we are at in the biblical story, a modern failure to understand what is called the second Exodus motif, many believe that we are not in the Exodus journey, but rather we are in the land. I would be one of those people. I believe that we are in the land. But then they believe that us being in the land, these people that don't comprehend the journey, they believe that to say that we are in the land leaves us without hope and without an effect of the gospel in our lives. Again, I explained how problematic that becomes. If you look at the Exodus journey, they got in the land and they began to live the promises. As a preterist, I believe we are in the land. The tabernacling of Revelation chapter 21 should bring our attention to the tabernacling of Exodus chapter 40. The wisdom of the Exodus journey was indispensable to Israel as they entered the land. It served as an example for the first century believers. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. 
These things served as an example to us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. I prefer, and I've said this a couple times now, um, I don't think the right word there is end of the ages. It should be the goal of the ages. The goal of the ages had come. The new covenant, everything that they had longed for was there in Jesus Christ, being consummated right before their very eyes. Very similar to entering into the promised land. The Exodus motif is used to highlight the theme of God's mighty work all throughout the scriptures. You see it again and again. Think about when you read through the prophets and they say, the Exodus, they always bring up the Exodus or they bring up the plagues or they bring up God's mighty outstretched arm. They're always reminding the Israelite to go back to the Exodus, go back to the struggle, go back to the struggle, sort of like us. What we do as preterists is we go back to the first century. We understand that we look at the wilderness journey and we say, what did it look like to, to accomplish what we now have? We should, if you ever want to qualify your life in a perfect uh, Exodus motif, it would be Israel coming out of Egypt, entering the promised land, you coming out of depravity, etc., and coming into Christ, right? And obviously we see that type fulfilled in the first century, and then ultimately we see the fulfillment in our lives individually. So the first point I want to make this morning is that, if I haven't already made some, but the first major point I want to make is that when we read Genesis and Exodus, we have to read them together. Because if you, don't, if you read Genesis to the exclusion of Exodus, you end up thinking things like the book of Genesis is about the entire planet. Because right, if you follow along, you just read to Exodus and say, oh, it's the story of these people, if you just go backwards. But then if you read Exodus without Genesis, you end up asking the wrong questions. Like, you know, what most people should be doing when they read Exodus is say, well, where did these people begin? And then you go back to the book of Genesis and you get filled in. It's the people, whatever you're reading about in Exodus is being informed by Genesis. Whatever you're reading in Genesis needs to inform what you're reading in Exodus. So again, Genesis and Exodus need to be read together. Together, they are the beginning. Matter of fact, obviously, and most of us know this, the five books of Moses need to be read together. They are one beginning story, which always confuses me because we don't suppose that the Torah was given to the whole planet. So then why would the first book about the beginnings be about the whole planet? But... Okay, that's me thinking about it, just saying it doesn't really make much sense. Um, I know there's been quite a few quotes. I meant to write them down, down this morning. I didn't. But uh, there was one quote where it was the first. It doesn't make much sense to say the first 11 chapters of Genesis are about the whole world. And then the rest of the book from Genesis 12 forward is about Israel's covenant. It doesn't make much sense. Another quote I had read was that if you take uh, Genesis out and you just read from Exodus to Revelation, you pretty much get the picture. Now just plug Genesis back in. And all of a sudden, it all starts to make a lot of sense as a story, if you just read it as a story. So the book of Genesis is our covenant beginning. The book of Exodus is God now continuing that covenant and tabernacling, making his rest, his abode with his people. So you might say, as I had a read this week, we're doing the B90X in our Wednesday study, so my weekly reading was Genesis 1 to Exodus 40, which, again, I just told you I taught on since June. So it was a lot of reading. However, I, I came out of that reading saying, how do I summarize what I just read? which a good Bible student does, right? I came out of it and I said, the beginning, Exodus, Genesis 1 through Exodus 40 is the beginning of God revealing covenant and tabernacling with his people. That would be my quick, short summary for you. Second point I want to make is it's important to know how God reveals truth. Transcendent truth, what we're reading in the Bible is transcendent truth, right? Genesis, covenant, not our covenant, but God made a covenant. We know now we can look back to that truth and say, the way God reveals himself is through covenant. Matter of fact, I have a quote written here by John Walton where he says, God now, God reveals himself through covenant. So 
we get a transcendent truth that God reveals himself through covenant, but we don't, all the details aren't necessarily transcendent. For example, obviously many of you know I have a problem with saying all men are in Adam. I don't, I don't see that as a, a thing. So that universal truth that all were in Adam for that old covenant, yes, correct. But then to drag that along and say that transcendent truth means all of us were in Adam, no. You see how that works? So it's transcendent truth, but not all the details are necessarily transcendent. You can't apply all the details to us today. As Bible scholar Bernard Ram once noted, interpretation, there's only one. Application, there's many. And that's what our goal should be as Bible students is to know the the interpretation of the scripture and then allow for the convicted minds by the Spirit of God to find application. Somebody had said that to me once, that you don't preach about application. I said, well, no, I preach the truth and I trust the Spirit for application. The Spirit does the work. When I tell you the truth, you study the truth in the scriptures. The Spirit does the work of convicting you and leading you forward on what you need to do. That point that Bernard Ram makes, though, is that there's only one meaning to a passage. We're not allowed to read, and we all know that, right? No scriptures of private interpretation. We're not allowed to just sort of start mixing it up and saying, well, the New Jerusalem could be this to me, the Catholic Church, and to you it could be the New Covenant. No, we're not at liberty to do that. We need to, there's only one interpretation of what the New Jerusalem is. might be many different variety of application on how we can live out our citizenship in the New Jerusalem. But again, the New Jerusalem is already a qualified phrase. Not only have many failed to put together this prophetic time clock on where we're at in the prophetic time clock, we also see many in the church going into what is called easygoing subjectivism. I'll explain. Many people, when they pick up the Bible, they just read it as if this is God's love letter to me. It doesn't matter that Obadiah was a prophet in 8th century BC. What is he saying for my life? And then we end up with the theology that we have in the church. Allow me to call it, again, allow me to call that easygoing. Easygoing subjectivism is not good. We, as we noted in our Sunday school this morning, it takes work. It's study. Good interpretation comes from careful study. Study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. The man who does so need not be ashamed. 2 Timothy 2.15. That's our challenge. So I'm leading to a point with all of this. Um, there's two quotes you'll hear a lot around here at Blue Point. I've noticed it because I've listened to almost everybody in the room say something to the effect of it a couple times. First one is, God speaks to people in ways they can understand. That's an interesting challenge to take up because what we're saying is when you open up the book of Genesis, don't expect the book of Genesis to be speaking to you as a 21st century American that's living in the West. You have to understand those people. But see, then people, unfortunately, we live in a very selfish time. Because people say, I thought you said God speaks to people in ways they can understand. The book of Genesis wasn't written to you. You see, but unfortunately, that's, I had somebody say that to me this week. They said, well, I thought, because we were reading Genesis, and they said, but I thought you said God speaks to us in ways we can understand. I said, yeah. He said, well, Genesis, I'm not understanding Genesis. I said, because God's not speaking to you. Like he's speaking to Adam. He's speaking to people in an ancient Near Eastern society that would have understood what a temple text is. And then obviously people get frustrated and they start thinking, oh boy, temple text, what is he talking about? Well, it requires work. It wasn't written to you. I, one of the things I had planned to do, but I'm not going to do it to you this morning, is bring a letter from a friend of mine. I have a lot of friends I write letters to. Something to pray about. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, uh, I wrote, if I brought one of my friend's letters and I just read it to you today, and I said, hey, Terry, you know what? Just whatever you want that sentence to mean, go for it. And I wrote my friend back another letter. 
He'd probably read the letter and say, who are you talking to about my letter? What is she talking about? What, how did she get that out of the letter? Because, again, that's what we do with the Bible. You take a letter that wasn't written to you, we have no context to it, and we just rip it out of its context and then make something out of it. And I, I challenge you, if you have any letters from friends, go home and do that today. Pick up the letter and maybe find somebody that doesn't know that person and ask them to read the letter with you. And then you're say, what? Who's that? You know, my younger brother, I do that with him. I like to read the letters out loud sometimes. And my brother, he's sitting there with his frustrated face all the time because he has all these details he needs to be clued in on. Well, that's how we should read our Bible. That's a good Bible reading right there. So yes, God speaks to people in ways they can understand. However, you need to know who he's speaking to when you're trying to understand the portion of Scripture. So when we're going to Genesis, we need to understand what's going on. Another quote that I've heard, well, actually, I just want to make mention of this. The one way that I've qualified how to understand the text is go through that five W's. Before I try to read a Bible text, I go through the who, what, where, why, when, and I, the one H. I have a writing called the five W's and one H. So, um, but again, I think that's a very convenient way to kind of get into the study. Just mark out who, what, where, why, when, and how, and then go in to do the reading and actually find some application for yourself. Another quote that I've heard people say similar around here is, a scripture cannot mean what it was never intended to convey. Right? Because let's face it, these are truths. There's one meaning to all these truths. We know it can be applied in different ways, but there's only one real meaning. And, and the scripture can never mean there's definite meanings. They're not subjective interpretations. I remember I used to get so frustrated that when I was talking about eschatology with a young man, he would tell me the uh, um, Jerusalem that the saints must flee from is the tribulation going on in their heart. And I was like, how do you get that out of reading Luke 21? You read Luke 20, that's not what he's telling them to flee from. And, but again, that was his interpretation, and he felt that that was a God-glorifying... He wasn't wrong. I would hope that you know, the way you flee tribulation in your life is by God you know, telling you to flee the tribulations in your heart, to set your eyes on him instead of focusing in on your carnal thoughts that are going on in your mind and your heart. So I would agree with his understanding, his application, but I was saying that is a horrible interpretation of that text. I had read a quote... Uh, this week, studying this out a little bit, they said, we affirm the meaning expressed in every biblical text is single, definite, and fixed. We deny the recognition that this single meaning eliminates the variety of its applications. So again, there's only one single meaning, but there's many different applications. Bible study is a blessing. Let's establish this right today. Bible study is a blessing, but it's study. It requires work. You know, sometimes I, I have gone to Bible studies where people don't want, they shouldn't call it a Bible study. They should just call it a chat group, right? You know, or a book club or something, you know. But if it's a Bible study, then it's a Bible study. You're going to have to go through the hard work of understanding the details. Matter of fact, I'm sure we've all heard this, the good things in life don't come easy, right? So, I mean, if good Bible interpretation, how much more with spiritual things? They don't come easy. They've been, they're free. Let's be clear here. They're free, but they're not easy. Biblical things God freely gives to us, yes, amen. I don't want to make it that it's a works thing. But at the same time, it's not easy. You know, it's, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I don't know how that's working out in your life, but I, I would say that it's not always easy. He's given it all to us, but it's not always easy to take part of that and, and to grow in all those things you read there in 2 Peter 1, to make sure you're doing it effectually and growing in it. Third thing I want to bring up, the biblical narrative. Genesis uses this temple language, right? So we, we read this temple language to describe God and God beginning to live among his people. As I already made my point there that you have to understand the audience relevance. You have to understand how that applied to the original people. I already 
I have a quote here I was going to share, but I already shared it, uh, from John Walton, where he said that through covenant, God is going to reveal himself. Most people don't even know what the word covenant means. Nevertheless, try to help them understand how that, what that meant to an ancient Near Eastern person living six to 10,000 years ago. So that's something that we must do. We must understand temple language, something we must mark out in our studies and say, how did the ancient people understand temples? And when you get that, you begin to get a better picture of what's going on in Genesis. For me, it's, it needs to be belabored in the church that when you read Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, you're literally reading an ancient Near Eastern text that is declaring the sovereignty of God. And when you look at other ancient temple texts and you compare Genesis 1, which, by the way, it's not Genesis chapter 1. It's Genesis chapter 1 through verse, chapter 2, verse 4. That's where it ends. You know, the, the chapter people and the verse people were liars. It's not the beginning of a chapter, end of a chapter. That whole writing is Genesis 1 to 2, 4. And when you mark that out, you get a seven-day temple text of a sovereign God that is now taking up his rest in his temple. On the seventh day, he rested. That's what we read in Genesis. But again, we, we have to understand the full story, and we have to pay attention to audience relevance. So then we get to Exodus. Exodus invites us to experience the sanctuary of God, to experience that covenant that he is now filling. He creates it, and then he fills it. And this is the way God begins to mark out his people by the awareness of his presence. So in my notes, I had wrote down temples and tabernacles. When you read Genesis and Exodus, that's what you should be thinking about. Temples and tabernacles. And ultimately, what do they all mean together? Collective praise. So what you're reading in Genesis to Exodus is how God is creating a collective people to give him praise. Again, if you read Genesis through Exodus in that way, it'll inform, it'll give you so much clarity in the text. It's just a God that is making a people and giving them all the ways that they are going to collectively praise him. God's presence is expressed through the praise of his people. Matter of fact, we read that in Psalm 22, verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. To the effect, we also see the temple, right? That the temple imagery, you know, we know that we are the temple. Many Christians love to talk about that. But we are the temple of the living God. They obviously add a bunch of other stuff onto what they think you as a temple need to be doing or not doing, etc. Um, one thing I will say is when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, ye are the temple of the living God, meaning you all. You all, not me, Mike Miano, you all are the temple of the living God. You, the church at Corinth, are the temple of the living God. You, the church at Blue Point, are the temple of the living God, where two or three are gathered in his name. He is there in the midst. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 actually tells you what the biggest damage to the temple of God is. It's not tattoos, surprisingly. Um, I get that a lot. Um, it's actually false teaching. That's what the, the hay and the stubble, all that imagery being talked about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is false teaching. So if you've wondered why I've spent a half hour now telling you how to properly read your Bible, how to, uh, you know, what, what good interpretation principles we need to bring in, is because I believe that the way that we defile God's temple, as per 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is false teaching. So the one thing we need to be doing as the church, if we're going to talk about God's presence and we're going to talk about all the great things that we talk about, we need to get that right. We need to make sure we're marking out false teaching is not acceptable. It's something we need to be better reading our Bibles. And I'm not challenging us to get out there and start labeling people false teachers. I'm challenging us, each and every one of us. Am I studying to show myself approved? Am I rightly dividing the scriptures the way that they need to be understood? Or am I content with easygoing subjectivism and just letting it mean whatever? The glory and the presence of the Lord was revealed through the tabernacle. This is where we get to the, the meat of the, uh, my message this morning. When you read through Exodus, you read all about all these laws, 
And I find it exciting to read through some of the laws, and sometimes I point back, I think, how silly it is to read some of the laws. I'm actually moving into Leviticus this week, which is going to be even more fun. Um, however, when you look back to Exodus, one of the major themes that we get out of it is this development of this sanctuary. And he's very particular, God, on how the sanctuary must be put together. Matter of fact, this week I'm going to be writing up a blog. Of those of you that know my blog site, mianogonewild.wordpress.com, I'm going to write up a blog that's going to give you about 24 different details of the sanctuary of the tabernacle that Moses built and how they relate in their context and then also how they relate in our context, like how we can apply those aspects. Because again, my point is the glory and the presence of the Lord, which prayerfully we're all in, right? We're in the glory of God. We're in the presence of God is revealed through the tabernacle. So if you look at that tabernacle imagery, you can learn more about the presence of God in your life and you can learn more about the glory of God in your life. That's my, my exhortation in that regard. Another thing is that this is the Father's glory. So when you see Jesus go backwards and he says things like, I will come in my Father's glory, that's why I don't understand why people are waiting for a physical man. Read the passages that talk about his glory, the Father's glory being made known. And then tell me what happened in you know, the first century and you see it. It's very beautiful. Um, but again, it has nothing to do with a physical man coming out of the sky to end the world. That's not what's being talked about. The Father's glory was his glory being seen by his people. Those who are waiting for him would see it. The word glory, matter of fact, in Hebrew is the word kavad. And in Greek, it's doxa. I like kavad because it talks about weight. You know, that you, in, um, in the culture I come from, you know, they, they say things like, uh, you know, your words need to have weight to them. You know, my word is my bond. My word needs to have weight. And what that means is your word really needs to be true. It needs to, you know, have some value to it, some substance to it. And that's what I believe is the concept there with the word, the, Greek, the Hebrew word kavad. Weight. God's glory has weight in comparison to the false gods that their glory had no weight. Right? That, that one true God, he has glory. The other gods don't have glory. They don't have weight to them. There's no, as I was saying that phrase, um, there's, um, their words do not have weight. They're false. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, For momentarily, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. I thought that was interesting because that's actually in the Greek. It would be glory, glory. He's creating an eternal glory of glory, far beyond all comparison. You know, in the Hebrew, when they repeat things, what they're doing is placing emphasis on it, right? In the the book of Genesis, we read about death. And it says, death, death, right? In dying, they shall die. And it's placing emphasis on the fact that death, due to this sin, they will definitely, surely die. So imagine how much more when we see glory, glory. What's the point? Placing emphasis on glory, right, rather than the death. This is what they were waiting for. The eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I began to wonder, what, what is the eternal weight of glory? Preferably, we would know our lives are that weight of glory. John 17, 3, eternal life is this, that they may know the Son whom God has sent. That's the glory. That's the weight. That's, and that's supposed to be a reality in our lives. Us basing our lives on the knowledge of him and then living. And that's what gives God, you know, God's glory further weight, is us living out that example, living out that eternal life. Dr. John Walton said, God's glory is dual in nature, bringing reassurance to some, terror to others, and probably equal parts of both to most. Good point there, right? John 17, verse 24, Jesus says that they may behold or see my glory. That was the goal of everything he prayed there in John 17. That my people, they, may see my glory. Do you see it? 
We're talking about the weighty things of God. Do you see it in your life? Do you see God moving? Do you understand God's presence? That eternal life that Jesus said that comes through the knowledge of him, are you experiencing the weight of that in your life? I'm going to tell you why that's important. It's important that you do. It's very important that you do. We're not to be of those people that say, one day we're going to see God's glory. We're to be the people that say, we've seen and we continue to see every day God's glory. And I'll tell you why. If a man claims to love and desire something that he never saw, he's deceiving himself. We say we love the glory of God, but we've never seen it. And how do we know that we love it and we're desirous of it? To back that up, because I'm imagining some of you are probably thinking, um, Octavius Winslow, reformed theologian from the 16-1700s, he said this, let your life be a clear reflection of the glory of the Redeemer. See, that's what we're supposed to be doing. The saints of God are the only witnesses to this glory, the only reflectors the Lord has in this dark and Christ-denying world. So if we haven't seen the glory, we're in a lot of trouble because this world needs the glory of God, the presence of God. And if we don't have it and we're lying to ourselves about it, then we're lying to them about it. And that's what I believe the Apostle Paul was probably saying in 1 Corinthians 15, that, you know, if Christ is not raised, all this stuff is futile. It's all nothing. As James said this morning, we could all eat, drink, and be merry, and that's it, right? So what's the conclusion? As you read through Genesis and Exodus, and we journey into Leviticus, we ought to be struck by the specific nature of God's commands to Israel regarding how the priests would dress, how the sanctuary needs to be built, what type of linen you have to put in the you know, sanctuary, what color it has to be, all these details. The regulations, everything seems to go on and on as you read through the book of Exodus. But the quantity of the details underscore the fact that the priesthood was to operate according to a heavenly specification. Moses was to do everything the way that the Lord had shown him. So when we read our Bibles and we read through Genesis and Exodus, what we should be saying to ourselves is this requires our attention. You should get it right from the first two books. This requires our attention. This is going to require some diligence. I'm going to have to sit here and pay attention like Moses most likely did when he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights listening to the commands of God. Imagine how he was listening. You're standing in the very presence of God and you're getting do this exactly like this, exactly like this. We have a video actually called Experience the Sanctuary and they use that very deep voice. And for me, last night I came in here and I set it up on a little TV here in the dark and just kind of let it boom so I could feel the effect of the words of Moses do this exactly as I tell you. And I said, am I doing that in my life? Because God, if this is the sanctuary, if we're living as the lively stones that build up the temple of God, am I following the specific instructions of God in my life? Now, granted, he's not telling me to put a certain linen anywhere or anything. Maybe telling me to clean the dishes. That's a different topic. Um, that's the third time today, so I need to take the conviction, right? Um, so, uh, but what is God telling me? He's telling me to grow in the things there in Second Peter chapter 1. That if I do that, I will become effective and fruitful in the use of the knowledge of him. That brings the weight, the glory to God that he, that again, this whole thing should be pointing to. That he created a collective people that would bring him praise. It's humbling that when you read through Exodus, you get into Leviticus, you're going to read about how Aaron's sons were killed because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They didn't listen to the instructions. Their good intentions were insufficient. There's a message in that for the church. Their good intentions were insufficient. Easygoing subjectivism, the fact that, yes, we have brothers that say, I want to love the Lord, but I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to have good interpretation. Good intentions is insufficient. We are to believe and act according to the scriptures. 
The Bible alone is our rule of obedience. Therefore, we must have a familiarity with it. We must have knowledge of Scripture. Because knowledge of Scripture is essential to our obedience. If we don't know it, we can't follow the directions. And if we're misinterpreting it and misapplying it, we surely are not following the directions. The entire story and system of God was to keep people away from idolatry, to keep them away from the idols they would make up, to keep them away from the idols other people would make up, and allow them to truly see God for who he is. Because idolatry leads us to dissatisfaction. When you lean on your own understanding, it'll lead you to dissatisfaction. When you lean on somebody else's understanding, it'll lead to dissatisfaction. And God doesn't want us in dissatisfaction. That's not eternal life. In John chapter 4, verse 24, we read about the worshipers that God desires, worshipers in spirit and in truth, those that would hold his glory high, in high esteem, that would know the weight, the heaviness of his word. But it wouldn't be external. It wouldn't be a show. It would be internal. It would be in our heart. Be it not a temple, a tabernacle system that is all for show and beauty and awe and all those things. No, live as the people of awe. Live as a people of glory. Because surely we worship in a greater tabernacle and temple system than all those old covenant details. And I'll end with this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment doesn't come by way of dissatisfaction. It comes by satisfaction. And you all know my favorite quote. I'm going to say it. I have to say it at the end. As John Piper said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Thank you.